Good morning. We are back together. I was thinking this morning, Jane, one of my all-time favorite movies, The Blues Brothers. It's like Jake and Elwood. We're getting the band back together. So we're all back from uh, out of town, and we're here with life together to worship the living God. Our call to worship this morning, I've taken a passage from the book of Isaiah and set it up uh, responsively. Uh, So let's read together and let this form our hearts as we draw near to God. The scripture says this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. We have been redeemed for a purpose. A portion of that purpose is to give God the glory we were created to extend to him. So let's stand together with one voice and sing the church's one foundation. Welcome this morning. We have gathered on site. I'm thankful to see as folks uh, get back from Florida and Arizona and such, the snowbirds are returning. Uh, We've gathered as well online, both by the live stream and by the recording. We're thankful that we can take this moment here and share it with others. Um, In Honduras, hello, Kampans, and in um, Hawaii, it's amazing how this gets out and around. So we're glad to be a part of these things together. A couple of quick words to keep us thinking together in life. Uh, Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday, we gathered here to worship and to begin Lent. Uh, That service and Aaron's word there as he preached is online and available. Today at the close of celebration, we'll have our fellowship time in the library and I'll be meeting for kind of a follow-up question and answer, a time for you to um, interact with me. I'm anxious to help us grow accustomed to be in an environment where people can say, wow, tell me more about that, or I'm not sure why that's important, that we can interact. 
So that's a way for us to do that, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, we have a slide next weekend on Friday and Saturday, our uh, Feed My Starving Children. Uh, we're lining people up in two-hour shifts to pack food. That food will be shipped to the Dominican Republic to help feed children so that families can keep them in school learning and strong. It's the way the gospel bears fruit in us for the blessing of other people. Uh, the other thing I want to highlight and that I'm aware of, this Wednesday, we don't have the details figured out, but after our dinner, we're going to find a way to gather and to pray specifically for events and for needs in the Ukraine, to pray for the children that are there, to pray for people that are making decisions, to pray for people who are fleeing, and to pray for God's um, deliverance, really, in a very pressed time. These events are happening real quickly. I've put some information that should help your prayer on our celebration inform that went out Thursday night, but we need to continue to be aware and of the calling that God has given us and the opportunity to be a part in the spirit on making a difference there and with those things. The faith that we hold and that binds us together, God's people across time and across cultures even now, is given to us. It's based around Christ at the cross, made known in the words of the scripture, the faith once and for all handed to the saints. I love our expression of it, the Heidelberg Catechism. And so each service we take a question. Uh, for this month, we're looking at question number 27. Let's confess our faith together. What do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Um, at this point, before we sing, we're going to take a moment and as a congregation, uh, affirm the call of Corey Plockmeyer. So, Corey, why don't you come forward? We will stand here so those online can join us. And the little blue piece of tape that no one sees is where the camera ends. How do you like that? So I'm, I'm giving you all our uh, fascinating cues here. I trade secrets. He's got it. We've gotten to know Corey as he's preached here. And you're aware, I trust, I'll remind you again, that Reverend Corey Plockmeyer has been called here to Holland as the executive director of a ministry called Movement West Michigan. He's ordained in the Christian Reformed Church, and Hardwick Ministries will receive his credentials and be responsible for overseeing his doctrine and life. I'm thinking that's best done over a meal, so we'll keep it to that. We've gotten to know him and appreciate that. Uh, Movement West Michigan, let me just make this statement about it, uh, is a ministry that connects churches in the area to projects that serve our community in the name of Christ. Here's their theme. Thank you for putting that up. Uniting Christian faith leaders to serve with humility and love for the flourishing of all in our community. And there's their website for you to learn more of it. Corey, I'll address these questions to you. In order that all God's people assembled here may witness that you, in the strength of the Lord, accept the responsibilities of this office, you requested to answer these following questions first. Do you believe that God has called you to minister as executive director of Movement West Michigan? Do you? Yes. Do you believe that the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and life? Do you? Yes. Do you subscribe to the doctrinal standards of this church, rejecting all teaching that contradicts them? Do you? Yes, I do. Do you promise to be a faithful minister, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of your calling, and to submit to the government and discipline of the church? Do you? I do. God helping. Amen. I'm going to take a moment and lay hands on Corey on behalf of the um, congregation, but if you would pray with me for his setting aside to this position in ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that in your mercy and grace, you have taken broken people and redeemed them. That doesn't mean you've made them perfect, but it means you've given them a call, you've given them a mission, and that you will gift them to serve as you have called. We acknowledge Corey's calling, we acknowledge his gifting, and we seek to join him in that mission. Thank you for your goodness and grace to him and for the future that you have for Movement West Michigan here uh, in our community. Be with Corey and his family, his wife Lauren, their children. Bind them together, help them navigate the seasons of life and bear fruit. But in this moment, we give you thanks and acknowledge your call for him to this time and to this place. And all of God's people sit together. Amen and amen. Thank you. We're going to dismiss Corey to also get installed at Watershed and Fusion. I told him I was kind of jealous. I don't plan on going anywhere, and they only installed me once. We're getting him three times. So he'll be a great part of what God is doing here with us. As they step out, let us stand and sing together, Be Thou My Vision. Amen, and have a seat if you would, please. Let's turn uh, quickly in this place to pray. Let's seek the Lord and pray together, shall we? Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you that through what Jesus did on the cross, the doorway to the king's throne has been opened. And so we enter in, not simply as workers for the king, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, we're deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great King, adopted by his grace and our response of faith. So Abba, Father, hear our prayers. We come to you as your children. We come and pray for Heart Awake Ministries, for the various expressions through our community. Particularly in this moment, I pray for Neighbors Plus as they oversee housing with folks, as they are doing tutoring and alternative suspension, as they do English as a second language, as they provide to the physical needs, diaconal ministry in so many different ways. Thank you for the chance to support, to be a part, and to pray. Bring a shalom, wholeness to our community. We pray for Feed My Starving Children that will gather Friday and Saturday to assemble uh, food, nourishing, uh, enriching so that children in the Dominican Republic can stay in school, can learn and be healthy. 
Again, we thank you that the best news on the planet, that we have life in Jesus, touches every aspect of life. We pray, Father, this day for Watershed, our sister community, and for Pastor Aaron as he preaches, and Matt as they, he ministers in music. For Fusion this day, as again, they'll meet a little later, for Pastor JB preaching and Sarah leading. We ask, Lord Jesus, that in each expression of the Hardaway Ministries community, that Christ would be lifted up and the gospel would be compelling and clear. We thank you, too, for Mission and Pastor Florencio that will meet and that will deliver your word from the very place where I stand in just a few hours in the Spanish language. Bless their ministry and extend it into the Spanish-speaking community in Ottawa County. Father, you've called us to be a part of celebration, this one portion of Heart Awake. And we pray together, as has been my habit these past few weeks, I'm going to give some topics and give silence for you to lift specific names. Father, we pray for those who are sick or ill, who've gotten a hard diagnosis and have need for healing grace, both medically through the good work of doctors and nurses and staff, but also in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for those who are sick. Father, secondly, we would pray for those who are recovering. So often uh, we've seen that uh, the initial treatment or surgery brings health, but it's a, it's a long road to recovery. So we want to pray for that journey. Pray for those you know who may be recovering or um, in the challenging time of regaining their full health. And Father, we pray for the grieving among us. In a sense, we share their grief, for we share their loss. Uh, you know each heart and each life, and you know where they are in the journey. We pray that you, you would send your Holy Spirit, Father, the one that Jesus named Comforter, that you pour out your Holy Spirit to bring comfort and restoration to a new chapter of life. We pray for the grieving. Father, you teach us to pray in your word for those in authority over us. And so in our regular cycle, we pray this week for local government and agencies, uh, those who govern on various boards and committees with Holland City, Park and Holland Township, Ottawa County. And Father, in particular, for school boards, as they navigate these times and often are the first line on the lives of children who are in very challenging circumstances. So we pray very specifically, Father, for our local area uh, governing officials. Help us to pray first in all things, and we pray that you would guide their hearts even beyond what they might see. So I was praying this morning for this service. I sensed a, a deep calling to pray three things. One, I would pray for every child in our area to have a mom and dad, a mom and dad who are growing in love for each other and growing in love for their kids. Father, we know for a variety of reasons that's not always the case. So help the church step in, help neighbors support children's and moms and dads. We offer no condemnation in a broken and difficult world, but we will pray for the fullness of blessing in your intention. Secondly, I pray for educators, whether classroom teacher, whether support staff, whether administrative support. Again, I was just deeply struck that often our, our teachers are the first line in the lives of children facing challenging circumstances. So be with those teachers and educators. Thirdly, Father, I pray for the people that work in law enforcement, a next line, as it were, of some of the challenges in our broken world. We pray you'd keep them safe and that you'd keep them um, kind, I guess is the word I'd use that you would guard us from violence, that you protect the rule of law, that amongst all the confusion in our time, 
you would uh, bless and guide law enforcement. As we look around the world and see places where the rule of law has collapsed and we see that terror, we pray for those charged and equipped to enforce the laws. Father, in our missionary prayer, we pray for the people of Ukraine, even now under attack uh, from Russia and Vladimir Putin. We pray you'd guard them, but equip them, care for families. I know in my own life to see fathers drop their wives and children off at the border and to head back to protect their apartment. We grieve at the brokenness of this world. And we yearn to see the day of abundant life. We live in hope of that final day when the old order of things will have passed away. There'll be no more dying or sickness or tears. We will learn war no more, as the prophet said, for we will live in the glory of Abba, Father, who gave life to us and called us into more than we could ever ask or imagine. Father, I pray you would anoint each of us in a ministry of prayer, a heart that seeks you. And hear us now as we pray together, one heart, one mind, one voice, just as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Well, for Lent, uh, the three preachers, the three amigos, if you will, we've, there we go, we've chosen to start a, a new sermon series, and we're calling this Enough. I'll give you kind of the word behind it. Uh, we want to talk about facing inadequacy. Not that that's a comfortable thing, but it's a thing that all of us have in one or another different way. Facing inadequacy. What does it mean to face that in light of the gospel? And so we'll start this. We're essentially preaching through the book of Exodus over the course of this time, and we'll start today uh, with Moses. He's going to be at center stage, and we'll learn more about that. But before we do, before I read the text... Um, I want to give you just some overview about reading the Old Testament. As we make this transition, this seems to be the good time to kind of lay some foundation on some things. We want to think about reading the Old Testament because for a number of months here, we've been working in the New Testament. And so there's an important switching of context and surroundings that you need to think about as you read the Old Testament as I preach from it. In the New Testament, it's the period of time following the cross and resurrection, and it's looking back to that and explaining it. The Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, that's always looking forward to the cross and to the resurrection and preparing for that. That's what the Old Testament is about. That's what Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 27, and other places as well. Jesus said, the law and the prophets, the books of Moses, those books are about me. And so it's right for us to learn to read the Old Testament as it points to Jesus. Now, again, a difference between the new and the old. The New Testament is often eyewitness accounts that can be easily checked with other eyewitnesses' accounts. Let me give you a concrete example of that. Matthew, he was called by Jesus, and he records his calling. Eyewitness account. Others would have remembered that as well. Matthew probably lived long enough to have written the Gospel of Matthew and to see its first copies. So the New Testament is really in a fairly short period of time all those things happen. Um, The Old Testament is a very different matter. It covers centuries from Genesis to Malachi, multiple authors from Moses to Malachi, many in varied cultural settings. You go from Eden, pretty unique place, to Egypt, to the kingdom of Israel, to the Babylonian captivity, across centuries and authors. Big, big difference compared to the New Testament where we have literally 
thousands of copies and fragments that are, in terms of ancient documents, remarkably close to when they were written. The Old Testament is more like Egyptian literature or Assyrian or Babylonian or Greek. There's fewer copies and they're more distant from the event. So there's differences and we've got to take that into account. But one of the key themes that you want to recognize as you read the Old Testament, and I'll go quickly over this because I touch it from time to time, is the God of the Old Testament is personal. He's not an idea. He's not a tradition. He's got a name, and it's Yahweh is how we vocalize it. Lord is how you read it. Do you see this Psalm 8 on the screen? O Lord, our Lord. We read in English, Lord, it represents in Hebrew two different words. The capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the name that God gave Moses. It's his name. He's a person in the position of deity. It would be as if we were saying, and I don't want to get these too close, obviously, but Bill Lindner is a person. That's my name. Pastor is my position. The Old Testament reveals a God who is known personally, unique in comparative religion. Very interesting to consider. Second thing that is important for us to remember is what I call the nature of inspiration. The Old Testament is authoritative revelation. It's God giving us information about himself and his purposes. But we need to understand this in a good way. We don't have the Old Testament by some kind of magic process. Have you ever been uh, close or aware of anybody in the occult and they'll have this practice called automatic writing? It's as if, and they'll write out things that are just bare truth. That's not how the Old Testament was inspired. Others think of inspiration as just kind of almost falling down from heaven and can't be changed. That's not how the Old Testament was inspired. Our Muslim neighbors picture the Quran as given to Muhammad once and for all. Can't be translated and still authoritative. Can't be changed and still authoritative. The Old Testament was overseen in its writing by people, by God. Its authority comes from the Holy Spirit. So it's not about singularity of process. It's not that some unique thing happened. There is no box in a museum with a scroll that Moses wrote. But through the regular pro processes of writing and preserving, the Holy Spirit was so present that we can read it and he will meet us there. So inspiration is about the presence of the Spirit, not the singularity of what happened. Third thing, for this whole series, I need you to know that I'm considering Moses the author. That's my conviction. It's what, as you read Exodus, it says, Moses saw, Moses heard, Moses did. That's my conviction and the conviction of many other scholars today as well. But that's not what I was taught in my church-related college centuries ago, decades ago. It's not what I was taught, even though I went to a church-related college, nationally ranked, that's been preparing ministry for almost a century, preparing ministers for almost a century. There, as a freshman, I was taught a hypothesis from 1870 called the Documentary Hypothesis. For shorthand, it's the JEDP. It assumes there's a long oral tradition and four different traditions that then get kind of cut and pasted by editors into one and then attributed to Moses centuries after his life. Um, I evaluated that both in class and out of class and came to a different conclusion. There was a hypothesis but no evidence to support it and a century of archaeology continues to not, I don't think, be supported by the uh, evidence. So I take a different view, what would be considered the older, more traditional view, that Moses is essentially and substantially the author of the first five books. Now, we've got to understand um, how that happened, 
Moses would have gathered the stories of his people. That's what Genesis is. It's the stories that had shaped Israel of Abraham, Jacob, Israel. And then from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he's an eyewitness and a participant. What probably happened is at the end of his life, he gathered his notes, though they were limited, didn't have paper and pen like we do, and probably with an editorial board, brought it carefully together. Since that time, they've been carefully, reverently, and religiously preserved. That's an interesting story of itself. But I want you to know that I take Moses to be the author of what we'll be reading. So this morning, when we read about Moses at the burning bush, this is not a story that generated around campfires over the following century or two, and then was recorded and attributed to Moses. This is Moses saying, I was a washed out 80 year old flunky, and guess what happened to me? It's an eyewitness account. So I think that documentary hypothesis, and I was years in this, so I'm only taking a few minutes, but was a hypothesis that didn't stand up to the evidence and indeed has had highly problematic consequences. Again, I want to close. The Old Testament, according to Jesus in my reading, is about Jesus. And so it's perfectly legitimate to read Exodus and say, what does this teach us about the one who would go to the cross for us? That's what will drive this whole series. Let me read this morning, and Clayton, you'll need to follow me uh, so that folks can uh, read the scriptures well. We're looking at the first four chapters of Exodus, but I'm going to concentrate on Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And it reads this way. Hear the word of God. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why, the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. Now this is interesting. Do you see how when the Yahweh saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. Now, Yahweh is God, but I want you to learn to read and notice. So again, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to Moses from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. I got them. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now you go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that in your love and grace you have spoken into human language that we might open it, study it, and prayerfully receive what you would have us to know for life and for living. Thank you that though uh, the Old Testament and particularly these books of Moses have been written and cared for in different ways and across different time frames than the New Testament, we can with reverence see your grace in them and work to understand and hear. So I ask Holy Spirit, you complete the work for which you inspired these across and preserved them across centuries that now 
you might set our hearts aflame, that we might burn but not be consumed by your grace and your goodness. Fill us with grace and hope, we ask. In the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. Thank you. Let me get set here. We want to think about a rescuer. Exodus is about Israel going from Egypt and slavery towards the promised land of God's grace. And where does it begin? Well, this first four chapters starts with almost 400 years. The family of Jacob moves to Egypt. Joseph is forgotten. There comes an oppressive government. And then a new character is introduced, Moses. But I want to ask you, who is the hero of Exodus and of this passage? Who is the central character? The one whom those scenes may change, the hero stays the same throughout. Listen as I read from chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So, Moses is here, there's no doubt. But who is the one who sees? Who is the one who hears? Who is the one who is concerned? That's the Lord. The Lord is the central actor. The God named the Lord, Yahweh, the personal God. And he says, so because I've seen, heard, and am concerned, so therefore I have come down to rescue them. Who comes to rescue? Is Moses sent at this point? No. The Lord is the initiator. He is the one who comes to rescue. And he is the one who will bring them up out of that land, Egypt, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Who is it that sees? Who is it that comes down? Who is it that leads? Who evaluates the oppression and is attuned to it of the Egyptians? It is the Lord. Friends, we'll misunderstand this text, I'm afraid, if we think that Moses is the hero and the central character. It's the Lord who acts. It's the Lord who is our promised hope. You know, it's interesting. You can go out on the internet, oh, that fount of wisdom and knowledge. Not. You can head out on the internet and find multiple sermon series on Moses, a model of leadership. And I want to tell you, that's not entirely bad. There's some things you can learn about leadership from Moses, some things to do and some things not to do. But the one who is active throughout Exodus is the Lord. Moses is always the secondary player, as we'll see. Moses is not the initiator, the Lord is. Moses instead is the instrument, and that's important and wonderful. You know, one of my favorite novels is The Pelican Brief by John Grisham, and it's a novel that's set in places that I used to live, New Orleans, Terrebonne Parish, and so, as John Grisham tells his story, you can learn things about New Orleans and Terrebonne Parish. You could even use the Pelican Brief as a tour guide for those areas. But that's not what the novel's about. In the same way, you could study Moses to learn about leadership, but that's not what Exodus is about. Exodus is about the Lord at work calling and using an instrument to his glory. Moses is just the instrument. He's the violin in the hands of the master player. Instrument, think of that. You know, we pick up in the life of Moses right now, but stop and think for all that went on before. There's been a whole lifetime, 80 years, and you may remember what happened in his life up to this point. His people were enslaved, but in the 
place of that, he had the good fortune to escape and be raised and educated, I might say, in the family of Egypt's king, Pharaoh. But when Moses saw the injustice of slavery, he tried to make things right, and he ended up taking things into his own hands, committing murder, fearful, he fled, lost all his wealth, status, and opportunity. We meet him today working for his father-in-law. How inviting does that sound? You see, 80 years, a proven failure. But something happens. He meets the Lord, the Lord who sees, hears, comes down, and will lead his people. And so the Lord then says to Moses, so now go, I am sending you the go It's second person imperative. It's a command is given to Moses. You are commanded by me, says the Lord, to go. The Lord has plans for Moses. And so now things are different. There follow two chapters of conversation. And they go something like this. I'll give you a taste of it. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him to him from the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am. And he says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he makes himself known to Moses. See, Moses needs to grow in a personal relationship with the living God. Moses is now going to have about two chapters of explaining why he's inadequate. But God has purposes for him. God has called him. You see, the Lord the personal God. The Lord has been at work all along preparing Moses, his safety at birth, no accident, his education, his facing his own weaknesses and fleeing. They're all part of the story, but they're not the end of the story. The Lord has an identity and a purpose to give to Moses. Moses is called But he's not just called to be something new because he is something new in God. He's now sent. The Lord will send Moses on a mission. With this new identity, Moses will have what he needs to join the Lord who will rescue and do his work. A third key thing, Moses will be equipped. Does he have shortcomings and lacks? Absolutely. But God will provide his brother Aaron as a public speaker. You'll see various miracles to demonstrate the power of Yahweh and the authenticity of Moses. Now, I'll tell you an interesting thing. All the miracles we see in Egypt, you remember the 10 plagues? Each of those is an encounter with one of the idols or deities that the Egyptians worship. We worship the Nile. The Lord says, I control it. We worship flies. I'm not saying it makes sense, but they worshiped them. The Lord controls those. Each of those 10 plagues are not just random acts of power. They're acts of power over the objects and idols of worship in the culture of the Egyptians. Moses will be equipped with what he needs to enter in and to do what God has called him to be. For us, we are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We have reason to be able to watch our lives, to look in the mirror, and to trust that God will be making us more loving, more joyful, kinder, more patient, more self-controlled. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Gifts of the Spirit to empower us to glorify God and to serve others. Now, Moses... God is at work at him, Moses, the instrument. Eighty years is a proven failure. He's now called, equipped, and sent with a new identity given to him by the Lord. Chapters 3 and 4, mostly Moses being hesitant and doubting. I am not enough. What do I say? I can't speak well. What if they don't believe me? Well, that's all true, but the Lord is is enough and will be enough in him. See, here's the fruit of the gospel, friends. Moses can be honest. I am not enough. And the reason he can be honest is because the Lord will be enough in him. It's just like Paul in 2 Corinthians. 
Paul three times specifically asked God, set me free from this brokenness. And God said, no, the brokenness will demonstrate that my grace is sufficient for you. This is how the gospel deals with our inadequacy. It recognizes our inadequacy and our fears. And it doesn't challenge us to go face and conquer that inadequacy. It calls us to see the Lord who identifies us, he calls us, he sends us, he equips us. And in him, we face that inadequacy. You know, there's a common term, I hear it more and more over the course of ministry, the imposter syndrome. Have you heard of that? I took a quick definition from a popular uh, journal, Psychology Today. A person believes that they are undeserving of their achievements and the high esteem in which they are in fact generally held. They feel that they aren't as competent or intelligent as others might think and that soon enough people will discover the truth about them. If you remember what it was like in middle school to walk into the lunchroom on the first day or to try out for a sport and you're the youngest one there or to apply for a job. Marilyn had a story about us moving to California and her interviewing for a job downtown in Los Angeles, feeling her inadequacy. Friends, I wanna tell you, a sense of inadequacy is nothing new among people. But how we try to deal with it is changing in our midst. The gospel says we can recognize and face and be honest about our inadequacy, but in Christ, his grace is sufficient. The imposter syndrome is that nagging voice of inadequacy, that orphan voice that says, I don't belong, I can't do. If only other people knew. Perhaps you had a friend, it was common growing up folks would say, oh, mom and dad put a pork chop around me and said, go play with the dog, see if he'll be friendly. We have that nagging sense of inadequacy. This scripture reminds us, who is the rescuer? Is Moses the rescuer at the center of Exodus? No, the Lord is the rescuer. He sees and hears. He comes down. He will lead them. Moses is the instrument. And when we rightly read and ponder this story, we will see that the ultimate rescuer, the true and perfect rescuer, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not until we understand at the depth of our being that the Lord is the initiator that we are called to serve as instruments. Only then will we be able to push back on our sense of inadequacy. You know, very common and very easy for me to be driven by this sense, I've got to prove myself. I've got to do this. I've got to show them who I am. I'm free from that. You can be too, that's the gospel. You can have an identity that God gives you, but it takes knowing God as he's revealed himself. I want to close with just two quick stories. One is from a reading I did just this week in Tim and Kathy Keller's book, God's Wisdom for Navigating Life. I realized in December that we were in a season where I just needed the wisdom of God. And they write this, every person's wisdom, their way of interpreting the meaning of things begins with one's view of God. Your view of God will determine how you make sense of the world. Are we in a godless universe so every living thing is just the product of a violent process of survival of the fittest? Well, that'll tell you one thing about a cat. Or is God the impersonal world spirit so that everything in the physical world is an illusion? That tells you another thing about a cat. Or are we created by the Lord who's revealed himself to be just, loving, and personal, and who has put us into this world to care for it, including the animals? That will tell you something else about a cat. What is a cat? It depends. Each view of reality would necessarily look at a cat and perhaps treat a cat differently. You will look at people differently depending on what you think or know about God. So to get 
God and his identity right, to recognize him as the initiator, the rescuer, and then the equipper who calls us as his instrument. Um, I left a book on my desk that was from our library. It's called Prayer in the Night, and I deeply encourage you to get it and to read it. It's in our library, uh, on our sermon resources blog. I've got links to it, but I want to read to you one story that, again, uh, my best stories come from my beloved, my wife. I'll read to you one story that illustrates to me what it looks like to live in our day and time called, sent, and equipped. Uh, This book is by Tish Harrison Warren, an author I've known over the years. She's an Anglican priest. I hear what she writes. One perk of serving as a priest in a parish near teaching hospitals and universities is that I regularly get a front row seat to watch some of the world's smartest people embrace prayer and redemptive work together. One friend and a parishioner named Joel has trained and studied for decades to be among a few dozen doctors in the United States who can do the kind of pediatric surgery that he does. Sometimes his surgeries take over 10 years. They are complex, intense, and exhausting. And on those days, you can find Noel standing in a hospital break room praying. Clipped to the door inside his surgical locker is a liturgy he prays before and during surgeries. At the encouragement of his spiritual director, Noel wrote it himself, drawing from the sources, the Book of Common Prayer and the Scripture, he whispers this. I'm going to let you kind of look over the shoulder of a praying surgeon, discipled in Christ, who's moving in his journey. He's joined the journey to be found in, following, and formed by Christ. He prays this, grant me, O Lord, for your sake, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to love, love for my patient, joy in participating in this work, peace as I follow your lead, patience in the trying times of this case, kindness to all in the room, goodness in this difficult task, faithfulness to have integrity in the details even when no one but you sees, and self-control that my own sins of anger, anxiety, and vainglory would not mar my judgment. He prays for his patient by name, and then he scrubs back in and continues the surgery. His patients rave about him. One father says simply, He saved my daughter's life, but Noel tells me his job is simply a chance to be a minister of common grace, using what he's learned in this world as an extension of God's kingdom. But Noel tells me his job is simply to be a minister of common grace, so as the sun sets at the end of a long day, Noel completes his work, a child has been helped and healed, and a man takes off his surgical mask and exhales a prayer of thanks that he could participate in God's restoration, that his work can be part of God's own work. My friend works as one who prays and prays as one who works. What does it mean to be called, to be sent, and to be equipped? To recognize God as the initiator but as instruments surrendered in the loving hands of a rescuing God to enter the world with the hope of the gospel. I think that's what it might look like for him. How about for us? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God and Father, you are our help and you have been our help and you will be our help. We thank you for your extraordinary grace that you are a God who is real, who has entered into our broken human condition, and in your mercy, you've called us as we've responded in faith, so you will equip us and you will send us. I pray that celebration might be a place where people can begin to understand more deeply the calling that you have, that we could affirm in one another and recognize the gifts that you've given us and that we'd find our place together in the journey that is mission for you, where you would send us. Tomorrow, you will put each of us in a different location, but we thank you that in this moment, we have seen the great 
good news that you send us as your redeemed children to be instruments for a world that cries out, even when it doesn't recognize it. Equip us, send us, fill us with joy, for you are our great God, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. If you look in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90 has a heading in it. It says, a Psalm of Moses. And that Psalm became the words for this hymn, O God, our help in ages past. Let's sing together. Now, just as we've commissioned Corey to go out into the world, just as we see Moses called, equipped, and sent, so I want to take the words of Jesus to his disciples and to us doing the same thing. Receive this blessing and benediction. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mm-hmm.